think about making it social and I think about being intentional around that ideology, it's looking for and seeking out the places that your potential customers exist now online, join the conversation, add some value. And likely through that that dialogue, you're going to find the other businesses, as I described, those partnerships that are already existing in the space and feed the other engine, which is your, your growth mechanism around that too. Welcome to the Making Sales Social Podcast, featuring the top voices in sales, marketing, and business. Join Bryn Tillman and me, Bob Woods, as we each bring you the best tips and strategies our guests are teaching their clients so you can leverage them for your own virtual and social selling. Enjoy the show. Barrett King, a SaaS, which is software as a service, if you didn't know, is partnerships and go-to market advisor, joins us today in the Social Sales Link virtual studios for this episode of Making Sales Social. So the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel that is 2024 grows larger daily. With that, you're probably making sales goals for your team if you're a manager, or if you're on the salesperson side, creating goals for yourself that I'm thinking might be larger than what your manager is expecting from you. Our guest today can help with just that. Barrett King has over 10 years of experience in both partnerships and go-to-market strategizing for SaaS companies, as well as cultivating new business opportunities, driving revenue growth, and establishing successful sales channels, and who doesn't want all of that? HubSpot is a company you may recognize. He worked for them in several positions for much of that 10 plus years. I'm a big HubSpot fan, so I'm definitely looking forward to hearing his thoughts in those areas. Today, we are going to be talking about both partnerships in your B2B sales efforts, whether you're in the SaaS vertical or not, as well as getting into sales planning overall for 2024, especially timely looking at the calendar today. We're also looking at how LinkedIn and social selling will be a big part of that. It's a tall agenda, but I think we're the two people who can handle it well. So with that, welcome to Making Sales Social Barrett. Thank you so much. I think uh, like you shared, we're going to get through this. We're going to learn a lot, have a good time, and I'm excited. Looking forward to it. Excellent. Excellent. Always, always happy to hear that. So our first traditional question always is, what does making sales social mean to you? And I, that's especially important for us here on not only making sales social, but just social sales link in general, as one of our tenants is using partnerships and using networks to help everyone in that kind of group grow their respective businesses. So in that frame of mind, what does making sales social mean to you? For me, it's simple. It's joining the conversation. So if you think about the place that your prospects and your customers are already existing right now online, that's the environment that you yourself want to take part in that conversation. Now, a majority of the time, your partners or potential partners are already in that space. So they're the vendors, and the like companies that are working with those businesses, your target you know, audience, your customer potential set, and they're already having the conversation that you should be a part of. And so when I think about making it social and I think about being intentional around that ideology, it's looking for and seeking out the places that your potential customers exist now online, join the conversation, add some value. And likely through that, that dialogue, you're going to find the other businesses, as I described, those partnerships that are already existing in the space and feed the other engine, which is your, your growth mechanism around that too. So it's kind of one, two punch. Very simply put though, join the conversation online where your prospects and customers are already taking place, LinkedIn or otherwise, you'll find that to be most useful. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. I, I, I love that, especially because it bridges really well in, into the next question that I have for you, which is, um, B2B sales, it's we are getting more and more into digital channels all of the time. It was definitely accelerated by the pandemic, but it was already, you know, most definitely moving in that way. Pandemic really made it go from zero to to 100 with the full turbocharger behind it. And um, with that momentum, how do you see partnerships evolving in that specific landscape, um, especially when it comes to C-level buyers. I I did some research. I, it's it's on my desktop somewhere. I don't remember exactly where it's at, but um, uh, recent data still sh shows that C-level buyers still prefer phone outreach, which I think is interesting in and of itself. So mm. tell me how partnerships really, uh, um, not only how they fit into it, but how we can take advantage of it. So if you go back 10 or so, maybe 15 years, and you look at the way, even maybe 20 years, you look at the way the buyers purchased, their behavior was really simple. We as a, a consumer-based society were focused on less education, more expertise-based buying process. So we would go to the brick and mortar store, or, you know, obviously at some point go to the internet and we would look yeah. for a sales-oriented individual. So somebody who was going to sell us on the value and describe the value and articulate the reason that we should buy the product or service and invest in that outcome. Then it evolved somewhere around the, call it early 2000s, mid 2000s, internet starts to really accelerate at that point, obviously coming to its fruition in terms of you know becoming a place that people actually did business. And marketing starts to rise. Digital becomes this ideology of, well, how do we educate our buyer differently? Because before that, it was billboards and radio, and it was places that are, as I sort of stated before, that our buyers existed, but it wasn't yeah. online. Now it's online. So now we have to think about how do we engage that buyer earlier? Well, that's marketing and that's demand gen. And that's all the inbound marketing methodology stuff that came out of certainly HubSpot and a bunch of other firms' efforts to educate the buyer when they're asking questions. So now we're not in this sales state where we're already so early on that we're reliant on someone to educate us, but we're doing our own research. And that's where the rise of digital marketing, the rise of inbound starts to take place. Yeah. Over the period of that five to seven years, you saw this education-based buying process become the norm. And so as consumers started to learn that the education could be influenced, as we figured out, we've all been through it, right? We look at that pair of shoes and all of a sudden it follows us around the internet. As we realize <laughs> that those things are happening, yep. we start to distrust a little bit. That's inherent, right? If we're, we're being fed right. so much of an answer, we don't question it as well because we believe that the answer is being you know, derived, right? it's being uh, driven towards us. So with all that being said, as that's taking place, Buyers are now going to the person or persons next to them and saying, well, what do you think I should do? And there was a very short period of time where uh, customer-based referrals and customer-based growth and this idea of flywheel, creating momentum in your business became the mm -hmm. norm. Like three or four years, everyone was talking about, you know, they're your greatest evangelists and they're going to help you build your brand awareness and help you build your customer base. I think that's where you started to see this continuation of social selling and a shift away from the norm of uh, content-based consumer education towards more specifically this human to human, this like person to person interaction around mm -hmm. the buying process. And so now if I fast forward to the last couple of years and really today, partnerships and the reason that partnerships have become this sort of forefront of ideology, the reason every B2B SaaS leader is saying, how do I bring partnerships into my business? Is that folks like Jay McBain over Canalis and others have put a stake in the ground and said, it's very clear that you're seeing the network effect take place, that your customers and potential customers are looking to like companies and individuals that already have their trust for guidance. And so when you think about the way that that 
the dynamic you described in terms of C-suite wanting to have a phone call still and wanting to have a real human touch in their outreach, that's typically coming from businesses that they already trust. So it's the vendors they're already working with. It's the individuals they're already doing business with. Those people and those businesses are your partner opportunities. So if you think about the way that you go and design and architect your go-to-market tomorrow, it's table stakes to have a sales team. We know that, right? That's like, no one's questioning mm -hmm. that. It's table stakes to have really good marketing and educational content to drive certainly traffic and leads and such, but you know, to give your customers a place to go, your potential customers. But now it's becoming the norm to expect it building a nearbound motion. This idea of a network and partner opportunity is more important than ever because your customers are already trusting those folks. And because your partners, potential partners own that trust, now the C-suite individual you're describing who's expecting a phone call for outreach is still not going to answer your phone call the first time, right? Generally speaking, like we don't typically see that. But right. if they know the person next to them that they already trust and do business with has said, yeah, Barrett over at HubSpot, Barrett over at Newbreed, you know, this person over here, I do business with them or I've interacted with them and they're on the, you know, kind of up and up, if you will, then you've built a little bit of extra trust. And so you can borrow that trust from your partner. You can add value to it and then deliver it back to them to deliver to this potential customer. So that C-suite individual you're describing now may pick up your phone call because your partner already educated them in this buying process that you are someone they should spend time with because you can solve their problem or help them achieve their goal or whatever that is that you're actually achieving for them. So it's an interesting shift in the way that buyers went from sales educated to marketing informed to partner influenced now in the way that they go to market. That's fascinating, especially because you do work LinkedIn and social selling a little bit into your answer there. I'm thinking um, one thing that we recommend people do is is to have their uh, LinkedIn recommendations like really, really stoked with customer or stock, not stoked. Well, hopefully stocked with stoked customers and things like go. that is probably the way to put it. But um, but uh, um, also we do suggest that they get their partners recommending them within their LinkedIn profiles as well. And then obviously you should be doing the same thing for your partners in their profiles because, because it gives people more of a sense of what you are to work like to work with not only in that situation, but if these partners are working with you enough to recommend you, then maybe that social effect takes takes hold a little bit more there. I'm 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 just wondering what you think about that. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think you when you look at the fundamentals of how human beings build trust and how they we right how we develop those interpersonal connections. I always like so. Here's a good example. So you're going to go to your um. I don't know, your your high school reunion. Well, that's like a relatable thing, right? So you're going to do your high school reunion, however long ago that was. Um, and, you know, you're going to either go by yourself or you're going to go with the class president. Which one's going to be better for you? Well, if you haven't been to that environment as, you know, I haven't per uh, my example here in like 20 plus years, I might feel better having a class president more so because that individual knows everyone. So when you think about the current state of certainly LinkedIn and any social selling environment, the more you can build validation around trust by working with the individuals that are already present in that environment, the better you are. So like I myself am active, fairly active on LinkedIn. And a lot of that is because I like to learn from those that have been there and have a story to tell about it. They're, they have a, a bit of a background, a bit of a context. But I've also learned that, you know, when I want to buy something, and I want to work with a company, 
like you're describing, I, Bob, I look at their LinkedIn, I look at the C-suite, I look at the sales leaders and CS leaders, and I see how their customers and their partners validated that they are somebody that is of good trust and of good you know, standing and is going to actually add value. So to your point, I, I think it's spot on to work under the assumption that you know when you walk into that room, if you've got somebody who is already comfortable in that environment, somebody who can help guide you through that experience, you're going to be more successful. And those are your partners. And the only way to communicate that is through some form of validation. And LinkedIn is a great example of where you can actually achieve that. Yeah, definitely in that social realm. I mean, because you can just say, uh, and 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 we use this, we we use this in a couple of different ways. So, like for example, someone says, um, you know, we need some references or something like that. We just, you know, we tell people as as soon as they get their their recommendation section stocked with those recommendations, you know, go ahead and just check our recommendations. If you want to reach out to someone, you know, go ahead and do that because you've already cleared that with, with them ahead of time that someone may be reaching out the same type of thing, except with partnerships going on there in that there is social proof and people willing to put themselves out there and saying, this person is a good person you know, go ahead and, 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 and do business with them. I endorse them. So, you know, it's just another great way to use social in that partnership vein. And I just, I love partnerships. Um, uh, I was actually in, in other industries before getting into this one, I was, I was involved in the whole BNI and all of that type of thing. And while that's a little bit different in that, you know, things are set up for you rather than you going out and really um, discovering people who who you like to work with, that that thought process of partnerships is still there. And I really enjoyed it. I think ultimately partnerships are about people helping people. Like it sounds silly and it feels like it should be plastered on like the side of a mug sitting on a desk. But you know, at the end of the day, I think when we recognize that partnerships are about making each other a little bit better, right? The, the better together story is the expression you hear a lot in the industry and yep. in the space. I think when you craft your go-to-market strategy and your journey around working with firms and people that help you help your customers have a better experience, everybody wins. That should be a natural way of thinking. And as it's evolved, to your point, it becomes about helping other individuals first, right? So everyone talks about how do we sell more? How do we build more value together? All of that starts with the human-to-human -human interaction. And interestingly enough, actually, so my current role leading revenue at New Breed uh, Revenue, they're based out of um, Burlington, Vermont. Mm -hmm. I worked with them when I was at HubSpot six years ago, five, six years ago. And nice. their CEO, Patrick Bittescombe, brilliant guy, and I just clicked. We got each other. We understood each other. We worked really closely together when I was their partner manager and then subsequently developed a relationship. And when you think about you know, why I came here, I came here because I believe in him and I believe in this business opportunity, but it was all curated by our relationship. And right. so that's the fascinating part is when you look at, you know, so many aspects of the professional and personal space right now, and you really distill it down, it's absolutely about the human, you know, and and the people, the, the kind of um, humanity within it. And that's how you can cultivate and develop really successful business go-to-market partnerships. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's so cool. I mean, once upon a time, sales, uh, sales and salesmanship, and I am putting that in air quotes, was what was all about just making the sale. And yeah. just, it's so not like that anymore. And, um, and, you know, hopefully it's actually taking some of the stigma away about sales as well that we all still encounter out there. Oh God, this person is just salesperson. He just wants to, you know, close me like a garage door and all that stuff. No, it's not about that anymore. It's about creating relationships so that everyone, even, even in the sales process and even after you close, everyone truly wins from it. And partnerships can definitely factor into that, I think. And it's just fantastic. So, 
Um, now let's talk about a little about putting partnerships into both traditional and novel B2C or B2B rather, B2C too, why not? Sales sure. strategies. Um, I guess I I had a real specific question behind this, but I think I want to broaden it a little bit in that um, some people are probably thinking, okay, how do I work all this into a sales strategy that's definitely, you know, call-driven, contract-driven, I've got to get this stuff into my CRM and, you know, all, you know, all that stuff. How does part, how can partnership work into traditional novel B2C, B2B rather sales strategy? I think it's actually made to be more complex than it is. I believe, I mean, I get a question version of this quite often and usually folks want to figure out how do I how do I start to build a partner program? How do I bring it into my existing go-to-market, et cetera? I always try and keep it simple in the beginning, which is go and ask your customers. And frankly, if you're not talking to your customers as a head of sales, sales manager, sales rep, CRO, and then certainly the same goes for CS and et cetera. If you're not talking to your customers every week, I mean, at least every month, certainly. And what I mean is like having five or seven or 10 conversations with customers, some that are happy, some that are less so, you know, getting a real temperature check, in those conversations, let's assume that you're doing your diligence there. If you're having those conversations, I would actively work in you know, a series of questions around who else are they working with? Who else are they getting value from that are, and you'll quickly figure this out, there are typically going to be three to five, um, five to seven like companies that you'll see a pattern with. It's, it's the easiest way to develop your early partnerships. There's this integration, Barrett, and it helps us to use your product more effectively. Or there's this type of services company that helps us to do the thing that your platform does or whatever that might be. Those are your early partnership opportunities. And so if you're making those observations and you're thinking about who your customers already engaged with, it should be a fairly seamless integration into your go-to-market in terms of then looking to those folks to build relationships around how do we do this, the better together stuff, or how do we do better together stories and develop a collective go-to-market that helps our customer. This is other side of the coin though, which is how do I think about increasing my own opportunity? It's very me-centric, but it's true. And you see a lot of B2B leaders right now saying, if I work with partnerships, I will sell more stuff, right? If I work with partnerships, I'll have a stickier customer. You have mm -hmm. to make it about the partner themselves first and recognizing like HubSpot's a great example because early on they worked with agencies like Newbreed where I work now to help their customers grow better by using the HubSpot software suite because mm -hmm. these agencies were delivering their services to the customer already. And now by using HubSpot, they got better value, better ROI, you know, better utilization rate, all the things that make their business more effective, but also could deliver more value to the customer. And so combining those two was a logical step in terms of helping to co-sell and co-service to support that customer. But there was this byproduct of that relationship, and this is the other part of the integrating it into your strategy, that it increased reach significantly. So if you think about HubSpot's partner program, when people ask about that, they typically say, how do they sell so much? How do they serve? Looking to up your LinkedIn game? The Social Sales Link team has you covered with our LinkedIn Sales Accelerator, a guided social selling program that includes training, coaching, and so much more. Visit socialsaleslink.com slash in for more details. Again, that's socialsaleslink.com slash in. So much. And I always say there's a third question, which is how do they gain so much reach and awareness? What HubSpot did really well, and Salesforce, I tried and didn't succeed in as well, and certainly Microsoft didn't as well. Micro, or sorry, HubSpot was very special in this way. They enabled these agencies to go to market with and for, really on behalf of them, you know, of, of HubSpot, 
and help them increase their reach. So if you look at companies like New Breed and otherwise, we were able to go and maximize our reach because we were a top partner of HubSpot's and we were marketing their software essentially on their behalf, right? And then developing our services platform around that. And so if you're not thinking about how do I sell further and sell faster by increasing my reach, we talked about joining the conversation already, right? Join the conversation online and be a part of where your prospects and customers are. But I would go a layer deeper and say the market as a whole benefits from you having partnerships that increase your reach and awareness. And so the marketers that listen to this, I expect are saying, well, we know that. But if you're a sales leader right now and you're not talking to your marketing team around how your partnerships can increase your demand gen, right? Drive better leads, more leads. Like imagine being a sales leader and in three months here when we kick off the year saying we actually were able to, to devise a strategy that's going to help us to increase our top of the funnel opportunity and have better conversions. And those conversions are into higher quality SQL status faster, all because we're working with a go-to-market strategy that incorporates the partners, the other relationships to other businesses that our customers already want to work with. That's the way I would integrate it into my strategy this year. Nice. Nice. Very nice. So that's a great way to bridge into our next topic, which is 20, 2024 sales planning. And you have your own podcast, uh, Outcomes, where partnerships and SaaS meet. Uh, you can catch that on the popular podcasting platforms, by the way. There you go. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> plug, plug, plug. Um, <laughs> can you share some overall key takeaways or lessons from your podcast that B2B sales pros and their managers can incorporate, especially when it comes to leveraging partnerships for sales growth? Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually easier than than most folks try and make it out to be. And maybe I'm oversimplifying it because I've spent so much time having conversations like this at this point. But I, if I were to distill it down and really focus on brass tacks, what matters, mm -hmm. what the core learnings are, it really is about the better together story. The companies that have figured out how to work with partner organizations in some capacity. So again, partner is a term meaning a like business that helps your customer as well. So this like really simply put, when they figure out, companies figure out that they can do that and that it is about a, a collective outcome that benefits the customer. There's this like triangle of value, right? Me plus another business plus our mutual softwares or whatever it is equals more value for the customer. When you've developed that value triangle and the customer is winning, it's a natural way to gain lift across the business. The companies that are failing right now, just to kind of create a counterpoint in that sense, the ones that are failing are the ones that, you know, forget that this is a... a you know, in some ways a flywheel, but really most importantly, that value moves around that grouping. And so they make it about themselves. I just want to increase my sales. So I want to find companies to sell my software. That's fine. It's a bit of an antiquated, you know, point of view on partnerships. There are companies that have reselling programs and they work very well, but even those resellers now are looking for how does working with you increase my value too? Not just how do I sell more software and gain more margin and certainly make more money, but how does it help my customers do better. And it's because this big shift took place over the last couple of years in terms of the education, like I described. So yeah, keeping it simple in my strategy, what I would do is do all the things that I mentioned before in terms of looking for those like companies, establishing those better together stories, but all the buzzwords aside, look for ways to make your customer more successful by working with other companies, increases your demand, increases your stickiness, increases your ASP, all of your metrics or KPIs that you are comped on and care about go up when you sure. focus on increasing customer value. And it comes from that dynamic. So from a planning perspective, that's where I'd lean in. Yeah. So speaking of planning just a little bit, um, just had a question come to mind. Um, should partnerships be made from a company to company level or is it more of a rep to rep level? That's a good question. No one's asking that. I would start off with understanding that you'll likely establish 
foundational value first, really your like MVP use case, if you will, with a rep to rep or manager to manager level. I, I frankly, some of the best partnerships that I've been a part of and established myself always started with two people that said, we can do this. Let's go do this. And you build the use case that way, kind of groundswell, if you will. I sure. think at the same time, though, if we're talking about from a planning perspective, it partnerships should be one of your categories. You have marketing, you have sales, you have CS, and you should have partnerships as its entirely own sec, you know, separate vertical and component of your go-to-market strategy. People make the mistake of rolling it into sales. And the problem with that is that partnerships takes time and, and direction and intention. And so if you assume that sales is quickly moving and you know, kind of faster pace in that sense, it can get left behind. Partnerships can get pushed to the wayside. Right. When you bring it in as a, a component of your greater strategy, one of your verticals, your categories, mm -hmm. then it, it benefits you to say, let's think about it from a business leader perspective. Let's go company to company and be much more intentional in terms of a top-down approach. And so I think to do it really well, you have to understand that the collective mission of your company, your, your North Star, has to align with what that other company's own North Star can also step into, right? So when your vectors are aligned, right, you move in the same direction and you ultimately have the same outcome. That only works when you go top down in terms of the bigger strategy component of it, and then also push from the ground up for groundswell's sake to build your early adopters and your your KPI-based outcomes where you can point to for the rest of the team to help increase adoption. So both ends of the spectrum, I guess, is my answer. All right, great. So with that, let's kind of shift gears a little ahead, specifically 2024 now. Um, what are the critical elements of sales planning? And we talked about this a little bit already. So uh, that partnerships can can influence or enhance in, in B2B in general and, and SaaS in particular. Yeah, every time I've been a part of a, a cycle of planning, folks want to talk about how much water can we squeeze from the rock sort of thing, right? <laughs> this is the nature of the business. And <laughs> right. And I, yeah. And I think it's it's being conscious that that rock has a finite amount of ability to flex. And right now with the way that the market has evolved in terms of how dynamic buyers are, how in some industries, certainly fast paced, but in others, and, and I think holistically speaking, how much more scrutiny there is in terms of every transaction, just from a financial and and simply just like time and energy perspective, partnerships help you to alleviate some of those concerns, which means that you should be very conscious of how you plan capacity and how you plan, you know, sort of your, your top of the funnel as well. So both ends of that, that journey. So what I mean is when you think about just, I mean, this is super nitty gritty in the weeds, but like if I'm a sales, you know, leader, if I'm a, um, uh, let's say I'm an ops professional, right. And I'm sitting there saying like, all right, cool. How do I go and design, you know, my reps territories, right. I think about it now in multi-dimension. It used to be single dimension. They have this many customers that they can expand into. And they have this much territory size in terms of, you know, net new logo that we've got from Zoom Info or whatever, right? right? And so from that, we're like, we're good to go. Now you have this third dimension. So it's not 2D anymore. Now it's 3D, which is how much referral business and how much lift can we get from our partner channel? And so let's assume that you have that established right now. You should be, and I expect that you are measuring the impact of each of those partners by size, by tier, whatever your core KPI metrics are. And I would bring that into my right sizing. So if I said like, for argument's sake, I'm a rep at X software company, I've got a hundred install based customers and we all know how to balance that. It's based off of account value. And you know you can look at the gap against whether software or whatever you're going to sell them. Okay, fine. We've got a, a book value now, opportunity value. You're in two states. Those states are worth X amount of potential revenue. Great. We've got our number there. The third you know leg of that tripod is how many partners, you could do it a couple of ways. How many partners from a geo perspective operate in that area? What's the average number of leads we see being referred to, you know, per rep across the company? You could go that route. Um, you could just go simply from the demand perspective and assume that we saw this much influx of opportunity from our partner community 
you know, regionally, globally, whatever your metric is there. Um, and then expect some sort of a, a metric growth against that 10, 15, maybe 20% and say, okay, we could distribute that percentage growth against each of our individual reps as potential upside, because we know that that, again, the third leg of the tripod is going to create lift. And maybe we haven't defined it fully yet. And most organizations have not to be transparent, but right. we can expect some sort of measurable increase in terms of lift. Therefore, we'll incorporate that as well. And so I think it's those three components in terms of your usual territory and opportunity-based balance that you do for every you know sales planning cycle in terms of opportunity. But I would layer in that part of component too. All right. So as um, it seems like one of the things that we've been talking about goes back to an old cliche. The only thing that's constant is change, and that's especially the 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 theme in sales. So um, with that in mind, what skills and competencies should be prioritized in sales planning for 2024, do you think? So at the rep level, it's interesting because we used to say things like you need to be good at discovery, you need to be good at you know demonstrating value. And, and I think those things are more evident than ever. But I, I mean, again, because we're talking about partnerships and I'm certainly biased in that sense, I think you have to look for and lean into like, so when I hire right now, for example, right, I want someone who can you know, diagnose business problems, have high business acumen to prescribe good solutions. But I also in part need them to know how to work really effectively with others. And so if they're in my interview process and they're saying things like, well, I have this good example story of how I work with a partner to close a deal, or I brought in a partner because it added strategic value, or if I'm thinking about core skills, attributes, and training development across 24, 25, 26, like the next two, three years, very clearly, I think they need to be at its core in terms of base, very good at at consultative, supportive, diagnostic sales. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, I think you have a, a second component, which is how do I establish a working relationship with partners? So not just from a vendor perspective, but also from an integration and app partner perspective as well. So tell good stories, have good examples, be able to do that work. The third piece is how do they use technology? One of the biggest opportunities right now in sales is that you can build a brand. I mean, I my show, we just touched on it briefly, but my show that I started over a year ago now, um, I was still at HubSpot. I did it because I wanted to learn how to do my job better. But what I quickly realized is that it also allowed me and afforded me, frankly, the opportunity to meet folks way outside my circle, way outside my own current reach. I want to look for that, right? Like if I'm thinking about training and developing and building into 24, my plans of how to help my team win, it's helped them build their own brand. And that's going to certainly increase our reach at a you know B2B level in, in its own way, but it's going to make us more effective. We're more in tune with the market. If we do that as well, I think that's one of the things you're going to see folks do more. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and you know, it's, um, just, just a real quick note about podcasts is if your company lets you do them, do them because you know, just me and Barrett would not normally be talking. I've talked to so yeah. many people and learned from them just by talking to them in, in, in this format. And, you know, sometimes you do get partnerships started because of that, or, you know, if not a formal partnership is like one of those, Oh, I just talked to someone. I think I can yeah. you know, get you two together. Just an amazing way to to do business. And a lot of people, I think, don't think about that. So if you can start a podcast, you know, there's obviously a lot involved with starting a podcast. I'm not going to make it sound like, you know, oh, you just sit down and fire up a Zoom meeting and go. Uh, but there are other ways to do that type of thing, too, when it comes to one of the things that we teach is um, is just having interviews with people and just using snippets of those interviews in social shares so that you exactly. can you know, people out there 
about what it is they do and about how you know there's just there's so much there that it's that it's mind-blowing and we do have a new product around that now but it's you know talking with people partnering with people which is one of the reasons why when this whole opportunity came up i really jumped on it because i think it's very very important so um before we wrap i noticed something on your linkedin profile it's going to get a little far field but i think especially during this holiday time it, it's it, it's important to talk about just more life-centered things because um you know hopefully we're coming together with 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 family we're taking a little time off to reconsider things everybody's making goals and everything for 2024 all that stuff so you talk a little bit about your three f's framework that I think is intriguing. Um, definitely a little bit more life focused. Let's get into that a little bit more because I found it fascinating. Yeah. So I'll kick off with what that means. So I, years ago, I spent time with this guy, Dan Tyre. And if, if you're all listening to this and you don't know who Dan Tyre is, go follow him. Brilliant guy, um, incredibly caring, heart centric individual. And one of the things he did, we spent, um, we spent eight hours in a car together and another eight hours at a client. We had a mutual account we were working on. And he's shut out of a cannon. I mean, this guy is like full of firecracker energy and he's just a really fun guy to be around. But he came in hot at 4.30 a.m. when I picked him up and said, what's your mantra? I'm like, I don't have a mantra. It's 4.45 in the morning. What? And you need a yeah. mantra, Barrett. And over the next four hours, I developed a mantra, to be clear. And you know, the reason that that was important is it's not just about goals. It becomes the foundation of how you think about and evaluate the way you spend your time. We all make a decision every day to do work that makes us money or brings us happiness or hopefully both. And so right. for me, I developed the three Fs. Uh, it's a little cheesy, but it works for me. And it's family, freedom, and fulfillment. The, the ability to provide for and prioritize my family is you know, number one. Um, the ability to you know, do good work the way that I see fit. I don't do well when I'm put in a box. I never have as a human being. So that's the freedom component here in terms of spending my time doing work the way that I think is, is you know, the best way to do so. Trying things, failing, trying again and learning. That's all really important to me. And fulfillment. I want to do things that matter. If I'm going to professionally spend eight plus hours a day sometimes doing something, it better be to the betterment of something that I care about. And so for me, that's about helping companies grow. I think SMB, mid-market, and certainly lower enterprise companies could always use help. And I just like go-to-market. I like B2B. And so mm -hmm. for me, it's rewarding to do that kind of work. And so every time I make a decision, I've had this for the last couple of years in my forefront of my mind. How does this job, this opportunity, this with way that I'm going to spend my time influence those three outcomes? And it it matters because I've had a lot of folks in the last couple of years, I think through the pandemic, certainly as folks reevaluated, like you're describing the kind of priorities and their goals and what they really spend their time on. Right. They said, well, how do I know what kind of job I should do next? And I'm always like, wrong question. Back up before that. There's three steps to that process. The first is ask yourself what kind of work I want to do and what kind of job I want to have. What kind of work do I want to do? Meaning what do I functionally want to do every day? For me, I like talking to people. I like business. I enjoy solving problems. I had this sort of short curated list I knew that would frame into it. That feeds into some of that decision-making. The second piece is, who do I want to do that work with? And so what I mean by that is, what type of level of individual, what type of background, what type of curated experience do I want to have? So do I want to be the smartest person in the room and make the most money? Do I want to not be the smartest? And what I don't make in money, I make up for in knowledge gain. So the second piece there being obviously the kind of people I want to be around. And the third is, how do those first two decisions that I just made impact and influence the life I want to live around the work that I do? Because everyone talks about work-life balance, and I'm going to swear here, I call bullshit on that. Like, I think it's it's the assumption that that means everything is equal is wrong. I think it's actually more accurate to say very specifically, it's about work-life blend. 
blend being that it's not perfect. Some days I work too much. Some days I don't work enough perhaps, but at the end of the day, it shakes out to be, I'm doing good work and I'm able to enjoy my life around that because of the decisions that I've made in those first two pieces. So that's how I've framed out a lot of my own goal set and sort of um, mindset, if you will, around you know, how I make decisions professionally and personally. And it's, it's helped me so far. Nice. Nice. I, uh, something that, um, that I'm definitely going to be come back to because I could use a little bit more of that, um, uh, not balance necessarily, but, you know, just, just more, more conscientiously, I think working, working that into the life of anyone can definitely help them stay sane if absolutely nothing else i think exactly yeah definitely so if people want to learn more about you and your offerings you have your podcast uh outcomes where partnerships and SaaS meet your company again is new breed revenue so newbreedrevenue.com we are a um primarily b2b uh, agency that does you know revenue growth, RevOps, certainly demand gen, all of the things that help companies grow are very technology centric as well. Very nice. Very yeah. nice. If you want to be in touch, I mean, I appreciate that. The show is great. I love that you shared that. If you know, if you're into partnerships, certainly that's all I talk about. It's about conversations with operators, been there, done the work, have a story to tell about it. That's my sort of go-to statement there. Um, you know, you sort of joked, but it's true. It's on all popular platforms. And I appreciate that. You're welcome to come check it out. I'm a LinkedIn guy. Like I don't I have a buddy who years ago said to me, you know, or why aren't you really active on social? And I just, I pulled back from that stuff because I didn't find it was adding value. I, I probably have an Instagram still and Facebook. I'm not active there. I'm, I'm right. certainly not on Twitter, also known as X. I have to say that apparently, yeah, um, but I, right. <laughs> also known as AKA, but I, I am on LinkedIn. Like come check me out on LinkedIn. I'm glad to connect with anybody. I have a rule, which is like, as long as you agree to pay it forward, I'll spend a few minutes with anybody helping answer questions, support. I'm always here and willing to to have a chat. So I appreciate that. Nice. Very, very, very nice way to 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 think of that initial chat to you. That's that, that's amazing. So um SAS go to market and partnership expert Barrett King. We really, really appreciate you uh taking some time out of your schedule and joining us on making sales social today. Really appreciate it. A lot of great insights today. Thanks. This has been great. I appreciate you having me on and uh thanks for the chat. And thank you for streaming this episode of Making Sales Social. So remember when you're out and about this week or any week, be sure to make your sales social. Don't miss an episode. Visit socialsaleslink.com slash podcast. Leave a review down below. Tell us what you think, what you learned, and what you want to hear from us next. Register for free resources at linkedinlibrary.com. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. Visit our website, socialsaleslink.com, for more information.